The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I do think there's a sense, for better or worse, fair or unfair, that Boris has got most of the bigger decisions right. I don't buy this Westminster sleaze pit. I think the majority of them are decent, hard-working men and women. I agree. The NHS is not working well enough, and it is not an academic exercise. It's about tens of thousands of people dying unnecessarily every single year. Sadly, I think it may take those people's deaths to shake us out of our complacent coma about this health service, which is killing people. Welcome once again to Planet Normal, the Telegraph podcast with Alison Pearson. Hello. And me, Liam Halligan. It's the local elections, and today, Thursday, is this 99th episode of Planet Normals released to orbit around our national consciousness. Some 4,350 seats are being contested across 140 or so English councils, with all of Scotland's 32 councils and all 22 councils in Wales also holding elections. Yes, this is all about who organises local issues, planning, rubbish collection, the repairing of potholes. But today's poll will allow millions of voters to have their say on national issues, not least Partygate, the cost of living crisis, and Britain's response to the war in Ukraine. This is the first big test of the national mood since that December 2019 snap general election co-pilot, when Boris Johnson chalked up a huge 80-seat majority. This time, as you've written in The Telegraph, the Tories are likely to get a bit of a kicking. I think we should start, though, by not only welcoming you back from your week off, Alison, but also by seeking your view on a subject of huge national importance, an issue I discussed with guest co-pilot Kate Hoey last week. Who is the real culprit in the ongoing Westminster saga of Angela Rayner's legs? <laughs> you can forget Angela's ashes, can't you? It's more like Angela's lashes, the famous misery <laughs> memoir. Are we going to be lowering ourselves to be discussing this tittle-tattle? I have to say, actually, it's absolutely lovely to listen to Kate Hoey. I found myself thinking, we just need more politicians like Kate, don't we? She's a star. So sensible and prepared to say, I've got rather good legs, which she jolly well has, having been a a Northern Ireland high-jump champion. But yes, the deputy leader of the Labour Party's legs have been causing a bit of a kerfuffle. I don't know how much you've followed what I hesitate to call the ins and outs, Liam. Let's get back to the beginning. The Mail on Sunday ran a story that Angela Rayner had been adopting the Sharon Stone technique from basic instinct during Prime Minister's questions times, distracting Boris by crossing and uncrossing her legs. And then, of course, up go the cries of, you know, Keir Starmer, outrageous misogyny from the Conservatives. Rayner was, of course, occupying the moral high ground in a big Doc Martens, disgusting claims from Tory MPs about using her body to distract the PM, which was steeped in classism, monstrous affront to working class women. Unfortunately, it then emerges that it was Angela herself who told at least four MPs on the terrace of the House of Commons that she had uncrossed and crossed her legs. Now, are we going to use this terrible term? No. You're more vulgar than me. Go on, you can do it, can't you? I don't think we can. And I contest <laughs> that characterization of my vulgarity. Strongly. 
My lawyers will be in touch. The first of the two words are ginger. But anyway, Angela was apparently, you know, had complained violently about being told that she'd crudely used her femininity to put Boris off his stride at the dispatch box. But then it looks like it could be true. I guess what occurs to me, Liam, really is I really, really dislike it when this word misogyny is bandied about, used as a shield to deflect perfectly legitimate criticism. And in this case, it actually looks like Cherche La Femme does actually seem, well, we can only say it's alleged, but it certainly seems strongly as though she was the agent of this description of her, of which she so strongly disapproves. But of course, we've had another week of sex and pornography, haven't we, in Westminster, co-pilot? We certainly have. I think when future historians look back on this period, a period when the Russia-Ukraine war is at a really important moment, a period when interest rates are going up as inflation hits fresh 40-year highs, a period when the cost of living squeeze is more serious than anything we've seen in the UK since the era of the ration book. The fact that our elected officials are fixated Mm. on not just who was eating birthday cake two years ago, but the legs of the deputy leader of Her Majesty's opposition. And now, of course, the scandal involving another MP, a Conservative MP, the chairman of a select committee, no less, a very experienced backbencher, watching porn in the Commons chamber. I mean, the mind boggles. I do very much agree with your characterization in your column, Alison, of this issue. I do think Neil Parrish is a decent man. He's certainly a very good parliamentarian and select committee chair in my experience as somebody who's interviewed him over the years and conferred with him and read the reports that he's overseen. He's done some great work. This was a moment of madness and he's actually resigned from the House. But crikey, what was he thinking? (laughs) You're torn between thinking it's quite serious and then actually thinking this just grows ever more ridiculous, doesn't it? Because Neil Parrish, highly respected, as you say, MP for Tiverton and Honiton, female colleagues reported him for looking at porn on his phone and Mr Parrish explained that he was looking for tractors when he suddenly (laughs) found himself on the porn website. He is a farmer, Lib. He is. I've been out cycling quite a lot in recent days, so I'm doing this mad London to Paris in 24 hours cycle ride for Duchenne muscular dystrophy. And where I live in the east of England, it is quite rural, and I can't pass. I'm on a tandem, okay? And every time myself and my, my tandem partner, we pass one of those kind of you know red triangles with a tractor in. We just end up sniggering. I mean, I feel sorry for Ipswich Town Football Club. Why? Because their nickname is the Tractor Boys. I mean, I mean, they sing one nil to the Tractor Boys. They're going to have to really own that going forward, aren't they? I did write slightly in defence of poor Mr Parrish because a friend of his then made the story even worse. It really is carry on up the Combine Harvester when he said that Neil had been searching for a <laughs> class dominator Combine Harvester. So I think perhaps he typed dominatrix instead of dominator. But as I said in my Telegraph column this week, Liam, I did uh, years ago, many years ago now, probably about 15 years ago, I had a similar sort of experience when a neighbour had recommended a group of gardeners who would come 
around and tidy up your pond. And when I was Googling their name, I vaguely remembered. And so I typed in women in waders and it was actually women with waders. (laughs) And who knew that so many large ladies were prepared to squeeze themselves into a latex inner tube. What was worse was actually having seen all this unusual use of fishing rods, to put it mildly. You can never unsee it once you've (laughs) seen it. You can never unsee it. (laughs) But then you're caught in this, and I do think this is actually a very interesting point. What did they say? 70% of men look at porn on the internet. The internet is a real dripping cave of the worst of our sort of ids, isn't it, really? Once you've been on one of these sites, you get caught in this sticky web. So I would keep having these pop-ups on my screen saying... If you enjoyed beautiful ladies in latex, you may also like. And then I get these things saying, Alison, are you going to another fetish party soon? And you think, please make it stop. But I do think that Neil Parrish, he absolutely had to resign. You cannot be caught looking at pornography in the Chamber of the House of Commons. But he struck me as being at the sort of bumbling idiot end of things rather than a grotesque sex pest. And let's remember, Liam, that a basically good man's life is in ruins. He'll go to his grave as porn MP, won't he? Maybe he put the tractor story out there because he wanted to be tractor MP, but it's not working, is it? (laughs) No. Can you just imagine the sort of PR strategy meeting where they decided that, boss, I think we've got to go big. Also, something I did like was that Neil Parrish did actually, unusually for today's MPs, he actually blamed himself for his own bad behaviour. You know now what they all do when they do their apology, they do that terribly weasley thing. Oh, I'm terribly sorry if you were offended by something I did. He actually said, I was a bloody idiot. I'm really sorry. So I rather like that. But I do think in the Commons, I don't buy this Westminster sleaze pit. I think the majority of them are decent, hardworking men and women who want to make a difference to their communities. I mean, there's a fair representation of really grim people, but I don't actually buy that it's just this horrible culture of sexism. I mean, you actually worked in the lobby, Liam. How did you find it? I agree with you. I think the majority, maybe even the vast majority of MPs are decent, hardworking people. They certainly don't do it for the money, albeit they're pretty well paid compared to the national average wage. But I think most of them do want to change the world for the better, though it's a weird lifestyle, isn't it? You're away from home for days on end, late nights, not as many late nights as when I was a political correspondent, a lobby correspondent, as you say, back in the 90s. But it is still a pretty weird lifestyle. And of course, it attracts people who are quite narcissistic, as you say. But I guess one way of not breaching the Representation of the People's Act, given that we are releasing this podcast on the day of an election, is to not talk about the election at all. (laughs) And we can talk about Neil Parrish and Angela Rayner's legs and so on. But we do need to address this election because I thought you wrote particularly powerfully, even by your standards, (laughs) Alison. I do think you've really taken umbrage at the state of the Conservative Party, at the policies that have been enacted, at the lack of leadership. And I think your disappointment, reading the comments underneath your column, and your column often attracts lots and lots of really interesting comments, an incredible array of opinion of broadly Conservative voters, but we know many non-Conservative voters read The Telegraph as well. We are a pretty broad church as a newspaper It does seem to me that you're right and there is huge anger out there and a lot of people are going to no-show or could indeed 
switch to other parties. What I said in the column was, why would you bother voting Conservative if you won't get Conservatism? And a lot of readers, you know, we get, we get, obviously we get a lot of feedback from listeners. I get a lot of feedback from Telegraph readers. And it's surprising how many are saying, hey, the Johnson we voted for was Boris, not Carrie. It's telling how many loyal Conservatives still claim they are voting ABC, anyone but Carrie. I'm very irritated, Liam, because, you know, this party we voted for. By the way, before I launch into this, was it not the case that part of the Brexit bonus was going to be that the government could scrap VAT on fuel? Weren't we told that? Absolutely. Under the European Union rules, VAT has to be at least 5% on all goods unless you get special dispensation. That's why you have the so-called tampon tax, because we didn't get special dispensation for female sanitary towels while we we're in the European Union. Now, of course, outside the European Union, we can set our VAT wherever we like on whatever goods that we like. So the government could immediately remove the 5% VAT fuel yeah. bill. They could paint it as a Brexit Brucey bonus, and 5% isn't a lot, but, you know, anything's a lot when you're paying two grand average for your fuel bill. You know, that's 100 quid. That's worth having. The pollsters are pretty much agreed, aren't they, that the government is going to take quite a big hit. And I suppose the question is how bad it will be. I saw one forecast suggesting the vote share would be 39% for Labour against 24% for the Tories. Now, that gap, Liam, is big enough to alarm the only constituency Boris really cares about, and that's his own backbench MP. So if it's that bad, the 1922 committee will get twitchy, actually rather exciting. And we'll be at our live event next week. We've got Sir Graham Brady, who's the chairman of the backbench 1922 committee. The letter holder in chief. Are we going to be nice to him or are we going to say, Graham, we're going to give you Chinese burns if you don't tell us how many letters you've got in your get rid of Boris. Thumbscrews for Brady. (laughs) I think we should do it. So, I mean, could this be a a more brutal result than you'll remember, of course, the Brexit logjam local election of May 2019 when Theresa May's party lost over 1,300 seats? There is an alleged Lib Dem Labour pact, which, of course, has been strenuously denied, but the Lib Dems do seem to be running very few candidates in council seats where Labour is thought to be quite strong. We are also seeing a lot of Tory councillors. I saw some adverts for some Tories in Wales. They're not carrying the party logo. They're not mentioning Boris on their election materials. What's your hunch, Liam? What do you think? Yeah, let's have a Lib Lab pact because it went so well in the 70s, didn't it? (laughs) I don't think there's going to be a Lib Lab pact because Ed Davies lost loads of weight. Have you seen it? He's taken to eating (laughs) kimchi. The most interesting thing I've read about the Lib Dems for months in The Telegraph, there was a piece about Ed Davies' diet. He's done well. He's lost a couple of stone. He was up at 16 stone and he's only 5 foot 11. So he's feeling a bit rotund in his mid to late 50s. So fair play. He exercised and he cut out carbs and he's lost lots of weight. And that's probably going to attract some votes for him. But I do agree with you that I think, as you wrote, that I think a lot of Tories will stay at home and the Lib Dems will paint it as a surge. But I don't think it will be a big absolute increase in the number of votes that they garner, though it certainly is going to be a kicking for Boris. I guess the only saving grace for him is that we still are at least 12 months away from a general election, unless, of course, it's a general election forced by the 22 committee and or a vote of no confidence by the House as a whole. 
So, look, I think you and I maybe disagree on this a little bit. I agree with Kate Hoey. I do think he's going to hang around. And I do think if he does hang around, he's going to win the next election. Or at least Starmer won't win the next election. And I think Boris will win it by default. I think even though there's absolute concern and disconsternation among people who follow politics very, very closely, like you and I, and people who express their views in newspaper letter pages and so on. Of course, these people are at the heart of our democracy, but I think there is a great silent majority out there who's sitting there looking on, engaged with politics every now and then. And I do think there's a sense, for better or worse, fair or unfair, that Boris has got most of the bigger decisions right And I mean, in terms of COVID bringing us out of lockdown before other countries, of course, you and I know that was only because of, again, Tory backbenchers forcing him, kicking and screaming to end lockdown. Your brilliant phrase, he didn't hold his nerve, he had his nerve held for him. And on Ukraine, again, whatever you think of it, there is a sense that Boris has got the big decisions right on that. Where we are now, it's just starting. It's going to be terrible. So he did a, an interview with Susanna Reid on Good Morning Britain, and she brought up Elsie, 77-year-old widow whose energy bills have gone up from 17 quid to £85 a month. And Elsie, who's 77, rides the buses all day to keep warm. There are going to be literally busloads of Elsies in the next year. Can you imagine next winter what it's going to be like? It's going to be terrible story after terrible story. And also, I am really annoyed with him because it seems to me he is sticking to this net zero goal, which is admirable in its own way, except the UK only generates whatever it is, 1% of CO2 globally. Come on, China have only got 1,400 coal-fired power stations. (laughs) It's not too many. So it seems to me this is a sort of Boris shaping his green legacy at a time when even really quite comfortable families I talk to are dreading the doubling of these direct debits, not just the VAT, Liam, but a staggering 23% of our energy bills basically goes towards subsidising these bloody windmills, which don't meet a huge percentage of our needs. So I'm thinking, he said to Susanna Reid, we're doing all we can to help people, households. You think, no, you're not. Slash the green renewables, cut that VAT on fuel. But I do think he's going to run into more and more absolute human tragedy disasters. What's his response going to be in November, December, when you've got Scottish children who have sort of been frozen in their bedrooms? You may say, oh, he gets the big calls right. But what about the human calls? I think he's very vulnerable on that. No, I've said for months that there's going to be mass non-payment of bills. And I do think it's going to get very, very nasty. I don't rule out some kind of nationalisation of electricity during this period. I really don't. And I completely agree with you that Rishi Sunak in particular was tone deaf in his March statement to raise benefits by just 3.1% while announcing that the government's latest inflation forecast is 7.4%. That's just politically unsustainable. But I think in the end, when it comes to elections, again, people do make their call based on available options. And yet there will be more Elsie's. But there was Jennifer's ear in Mm. 1992, (laughs) the Battle of Jennifer's ear, when the Labour Party under Kinnock tried to discredit John Major's Tory party. And indeed, John Major hung on. In 2001, do you remember when Blair was 
upbraided by Sharon Storer, who was Ooh. a woman whose husband was being treated by the NHS. And understandably, she was really concerned because she felt rightly, as it turned out, her husband wasn't getting the attention he so richly deserved from the medical staff. But in the end, Blair went on to win you know, another massive majority. These things are really, really important to the broadcast media and to 24-hour news and to newspaper scribblers like us. But they often don't cut through as much as we think they are going to cut through. And again, as long as Keir Starmer can't even define what a woman is, as long as he keeps going down these identitarian, mad student politics lines, as long as he can't stomach really telling the loony left of his party to get stuffed, which he can't. He has marginalised them to some degree, but they're still around. Then he will lose. And I say that in a way with some regret because I do want a fair fight in politics. You know, I have talked to senior people in the government. I've talked to people in the cabinet who've said to me, I think the Tories could do with a loss at this point in order to replenish the party. Well, I think it's got a bit of an end of days feeling to me. The one thing the Conservatives always scored highly on is competence. Now, according to the latest YouGov poll this week, only 20% of people say that the Tories led by Boris Johnson are best at managing the cost of living crisis. A Labour government led by Keir Starmer, as you say, Liam, I wouldn't entrust him with the care of my pot plant, scored 38% with 26% saying they would trust neither. You know, this is the nub of the thing. The Conservatives, no one thinks they're going to necessarily be nice or whatever, but the basic competence. That's their great selling point. I don't know. I'm. Let's watch what happens at the polls. You know, the previous low point of Tory support was in the mid-1990s when even the true blue counties like Kent were lost to the Lib Lab councillors. And then it was 13 years before Tories returned to power. So I think it's interesting. I strongly suspect that the party will ditch Boris. They are very ruthless. And if they think a new, fresh face full of ideas and hope can put some distance between them and and the chaos. And also, Liam, let's not forget that the NHS, I think, is spiralling out of control. I think it's worse than we can even begin to imagine, to be honest. Hello, I'm Christopher Hope, but my pals call me Chopper, and you can too. Just dropping into my second favourite podcast to tell you about another Telegraph show, mine. As a Telegraph's chief political correspondent, I spend my days holding politicians to account and asking them about the things that affect you. I speak to the top politicians from across the political spectrum, commentators with their finger on the pulse, and of course, my talented colleagues at the Telegraph. So if that sounds like your cup of tea... Please search Chopper's Politics wherever you're listening to this. Cheerio! Now, if a man doesn't believe in God, he'll believe in something else. So said G.K. Chesterton. Well, for many of us here in the UK, men and women alike, our national religion is now the National Health Service. Many Brits, of course, are grateful to NHS staff who've looked after us and family and friends when we've needed medical attention. Superb life-saving work happens every day with countless NHS nurses, doctors and other support staff doing an excellent job on our behalf. But 
When you look at the performance of the UK's healthcare system compared to other nations, the NHS does not compare well. Across a range of outcomes, including the treatments of cancer, heart disease and strokes, far from being the best in the world, the NHS is at the foot of the table of other advanced nations, each of them also providing healthcare that's free at the point of use. Tim Knox used to run the Centre for Policy Studies think tank, and he's just written a study entitled International Healthcare Outcomes Index 2022 for another think tank, Civitas. Tim's dug deeply into lots of international data, and as he climbed aboard the rocket, I started by asking him what his new study had found. Sadly, I found that we are bouncing along the bottom of the league table in terms of our healthcare outcomes. It really is a very depressing story. In four of the 16 measures which we studied, Britain came bottom. In another four, we were in the bottom three. There's only one country which could be argued to be worse than us, and that is America. There's absolutely no way at all that by criticising the NHS, I'm somehow advocating that we all should go to an American system because what they have is completely uh, inappropriate and, in fact, crazy. That's often the way it's presented, isn't it, Tim? Anybody that questions the NHS in any way is immediately accused by much of the broadcast media of advocating a kind of free market system, quotes the American system, which, as you've shown here, gives the worst health outcomes under many headings. Now, you've chosen these 18 comparable well-off countries, or you really you've adopted those countries because they were actually chosen by a bunch of specialist health think tanks and the highly independent Institute for Fiscal Studies. What you've done is you've taken existing studies and developed and deepened them. And it's quite shocking to me that the UK is bottom of the league table in terms of how well or badly we treat major diseases. We've got the worst results for treating many cancers, for heart attacks and for strokes. How shocked were you at these findings? I was truly shocked. I did start from a simple question of how on earth can we measure how well or badly the NHS is doing. And I obviously looked around all the obvious sources and I stumbled across this report, which was published about four or five years ago by the leading health think tanks and the Institute for Fiscal Studies. And reading that report, it was quite clear that the outcomes for the NHS were poor. So I thought it was time to update the figures. And that's all I did. I used an established methodology and the highly respected OECD international database, which is designed specifically to help researchers compare health outcomes in uh, the member states of the OECD. And it's worth saying you updated using 2019 numbers, didn't you? So your ghastly outcomes actually relate to the pre-COVID period. So it doesn't include any of the dislocation uh, to the NHS that's taken place during the pandemic. Is that correct? It's absolutely right. I drew a line in 2019 where beyond which we did not go. That meant that all the data in the report is completely unaffected by the pandemic. But it is worth adding that the very early signs from the data that is available so far, that we had an even worse outcome during the pandemic. First of all, our spending rose by 
the most of any of the countries that were studied. And secondly, we had one of the highest death rates. We had one of the highest excess death rates. We've had one of the highest collateral death rates. And we've had one of the highest increases in waiting times of any of the comparable countries. Now, I stress that at the moment, the data is very early, uh, very preliminary data only. It will be updated shortly, and we intend, obviously, to reissue our findings when that data is released. I'm just looking at some of the tables in the report. I'd like you to explain what these tables mean in layman's terms, if you like, Tim. So the UK strokes 41.7%. That's higher than any other country. Heart attacks, 8.1%. That's higher than any other country. Treatable deaths per 100,000, 69. That's higher than any other country except the United States. Let's start with strokes. What does that mean? Strokes, 41.7%, a number that's higher than any of the comparable 18 countries. It's the proportion of people who enter hospital with a stroke who will die within 30 days of entering hospital. It's a direct measure of how well a hospital treats a patient for strokes. And so you can compare it across countries. And sadly, we are right at the bottom of the league table. So we're at 41.7%. The Aussies are at 32.6%. They're the next one down. The Swedes are at 24%. That's a terrible outcome. Heart attacks were also the highest number there, 8.1%. What does that mean? It's the proportion of patients who die within 30 days of entering hospital. 8.1% of people in Britain going to hospital with a heart attack will not survive for 30 days. In Netherlands, just across uh, the English Channel, only 3.2% will die within 30 days. This has nothing to do with how well we live, how much exercise we take, how much cigarettes we smoke, how much booze we drink. And we will come on to that. Let me just finish with these diagnostics because they're absolutely eye-popping. We will come on to to that argument, Tim. Treatable deaths per 100,000, 69. Treatable deaths, also known as amenable deaths, are defined as those deaths which happen where if the patient had been given the appropriate treatment, that patient would have lived. These are deaths which are effectively caused by the shortcomings of the health system. And sadly, we are one from bottom. If we were only average, and on just this one measure, it would mean that over 6,600 people would be alive every year. You can put this in context of the pandemic, where I think over two years, we've had about 180,000 deaths which have been attributed to COVID. Over that time, we spent hundreds of billions of pounds as being the focus of all our attentions, very understandably. But we are losing over 6,500 people a year. Over 25 years, that's equivalent to what we've lost in the pandemic. It's just been completely ignored. The health establishment seems to treat it as perfectly normal. There's never been a health select committee inquiry into why we had such a high rate of treatable mortality. It's shocking. And it's very interesting. You very 
cleverly, if I may say so, pick your way through the counter arguments. Some people say, oh, but we don't spend as much on the NHS as other countries do. And yet you show unequivocally that the UK spending is about the national average. It's 10.2% of GDP in 2019, exactly matching the average of the other countries studied. You also tackle the criticism that it's all our fault. More Brits die at the hands of the NHS on average because we eat the wrong food, because we're fat, because we smoke too much and because we drink too much. How do you counter that statement, which is often made, not least by the sort of bien-pensant classes who dominate our media? No, it's not true. Certainly, we could do far better. And probably we do smoke and drink too much and we eat a bit too much. But then so does the populations in all the other advanced countries that we looked at. So in terms of smoking, we're 11th out of 17 countries, so you know, pretty mid-ranking. In terms of drinking, we're 13 out of 19. In terms of the amount of fat we eat, we're fifth out of 19. So we're pretty mid-table in terms of how we look after ourselves. But again, I have to stress, we are right at the bottom in terms of our health outcomes. Also, the OECD data is much more sophisticated than my detractors seem to realise. So when we look at cancer outcomes, for example, we're not looking at the number of cancer deaths per country. That would obviously be highly related to how much people smoke or their diet. What the OECD data look at is the five-year survival rate from first diagnosis. And there the numbers are staggering again. In Japan, where a lot of people smoke, 60% of patients who are diagnosed with lung cancer survive for five or more years. Here, it is just 21%. This clearly has very little indeed to do with how we live. It has very much more to do with how well our health system copes with lung cancer. And again, we mentioned it earlier, amenable mortality, treatable mortality. This is the direct number of deaths per year, every year, that are caused by failings of the National Health Services. We really are doing badly, and I think it's time that we realised it. I think the cancer numbers in your study, Tim, and indeed in The Lancet as well, are really eye-popping. I'll just read some of them out. Pancreatic cancer, the five-year survival rate, how many people survive five years or more after their first diagnosis, 10% in the UK, getting on for 20% in Australia, stomach cancer, 24% survival rate in the UK, 37% in Australia, lung cancer, as you say, it's 17% in the UK, it's 25% in Canada. It really does think that we've got very, very bad health outcomes, even compared to Ireland. And I'm not dissing Ireland. I'm an Irish citizen. But Ireland is in many ways, ethnically, culturally, diet wise, weather wise, almost a carbon copy of Britain, massive crossover. And yet even compared to a country 
that we share so much of our biology with, if you like. In Ireland, stomach cancer survival rates five-year are 33%, and here in the UK, they are just 24%. It really does seem as if the NHS is getting some really bad outcomes, and you are at pains to point out, I mean, and I'm quoting you directly here, I personally have no grudge against any doctor, nurse or health sector worker. I and my close family have often, if not always, had the most amazing treatment from concerned, dedicated and caring individuals working extremely hard in the NHS. You have no axe to grind here, Tim, do you? You want to maintain, as do I, as does Alison, free at the point of use healthcare. You're just saying we could get much more bang for our buck. Absolutely. And it is important to realise that there are alternatives. It is not the American system or the NHS. There is the, the health systems in 17 other countries who all do manage to provide free at the point of use health care for those who need it most, but who also have a degree of patient choice and a sense of agency, so that when something goes wrong, just as it goes wrong in any aspect of life, of course things can go wrong, but with other international systems, they really do have a choice about what they can do with it. Here we are at the mercy of the NHS management. It is time for us to look across the rest of the world to see what everyone is doing so much better than we are. Tim, you're a very experienced and seasoned political operator, if I may say so. You helped to run the the Centre for Policy Studies, a very important think tank at Westminster. You've talked over many years to many politicians and journalists. I know that from our own encounters, but you're also a very studious and precise person. Do you expect your analysis to be received graciously? Do you expect it to be treated fairly? Or do you expect the usual ad hominem attacks? I certainly expect the usual (laughs) ad hominem attacks, and I think it's important to be realistic about what can be achieved. This has to be the opening salvo in a long war. There are signs that the public attitudes towards the NHS are changing. The latest British Social Attitudes Survey showed an extraordinary drop in popular support for the NHS, levels not seen for 25 years. People are beginning to realise, it seems, that the NHS is not doing as well as it should do. Now, how long it will take for our political friends to accept this and to realise it is a completely different question. They might well say, except behind closed doors in private conversations, that yes, the NHS is not doing very well. But... It is now held up as such a sacred cow, and it is thought of by the media, by the Westminster Village, by all the usual suspects, that it is such a wonderful institution that somehow has complete public support, which is obviously not the case, that it is beyond criticism. And so there's always this confusion about how we all went out and clapped for the NHS during the pandemic. We weren't really clapping for the NHS, so I don't think we were. We were clapping for the dedication and hard work and sacrifices being made by the many hundreds of thousands of people who work for the NHS. We were not clapping for the system. It is time we recognised that the system is failing. It's not a question of money. It's not a question of our lifestyles. 
It's not a question of individual failings of doctors and nurses. It's a systemic failing, and one which, until we get that message out there and debated cleanly and positively, then we will continue to bounce along the bottom of the league tables. And this is not just a statistical exercise or an academic bit of work. It's about tens of thousands of people dying unnecessarily every single year. Final question for you, Tim. It strikes me that the NHS, which employs over a million people, is pretty unwieldy, is inefficient. But I put this to you. The Conservatives aren't stepping up here. They're not putting their head above the parapet. It was Tony Blair who talked about having the scars on his back from trying to reform the NHS. It was Tony Blair who's got closer than any other Premier in recent years, in my view, to actually grasping this nettle. Absolutely. And as he was fond of saying, what counts is what works. The NHS is not working well enough, in my view. And it is not an academic exercise. It's not a clever statistical analysis. It's about tens of thousands of people dying unnecessarily every single year. Our political friends need to wake up and take the difficult decision to see what can be done. It's a long-term process. It's not going to be a, a manifesto pledge in the next election campaign. It will take a long time to build the cross-party support which is necessary for enduring change. Tim Knox, fabulous to have you on Planet Normal and many congratulations on this new publication. Gosh, co-pilot, I feel pretty shattered having listened to that. Very grateful to Tim Knox for doing this immensely valuable and irrefutable piece of work. Hearing him talk about the comparative survival rates, you know, my grandfather died of lung cancer. Sure, most listeners will be thinking of their own loved ones who have died. And as Tim pointed out to you, those percentages behind those percentages are thousands of men, women and children who need not have died. We keep coming back to this. We've had the Shrewsbury and Telford maternity scandal in which over 200 babies died because of NHS errors. And as Tim Knox said to you, we are at the mercy of NHS management. Now, when people like you or I dare to raise this, if ever I put something on Twitter, the left come back with, oh, what do you expect after 12 years of Tory cuts? If only we spent as much on our health service as other countries. But Tim Knox has stated, hasn't he, very clearly that our spending is perfectly average and yet we get pretty dreadful outcomes. Indeed, it's 10.2% of GDP in 2019, which is bang in the middle of the OECD average. And that's the really powerful thing about this study by Tim Knox. And we've put a link to the PDF of that report that Tim wrote for the think tank Civitas. We've put that link in the show notes of this episode so Planet Normal citizens can have a gander at that if they want to. What he's really good at in this report He's taken an existing study by the IFS using OECD data and a bunch of other highly reputable health think tanks. And he's analysed the data and he's updated the data and he's going to using again from the OECD and he's going to update the data again when it comes out. And we made the point, didn't we, in the interview that this is 2019 data, so we haven't even 
seen the impact of an NHS that was locked down to a much greater extent than many other healthcare systems across the world. And to be absolutely clear, we're analysing here the 19 most advanced nations in the world in terms of healthcare. And we are at the bottom or very near the bottom across a host of different headings in terms of outcomes. And far from wanting an American system, Tim Knox is at pains to point out the last thing he wants is an American system because the health outcomes for the American system are in some cases even worse than the UK. So no one wants an American system. We just want the NHS to work better and we think there are ways it can be made to work better and we can learn from other countries, but we can't learn if we keep our head in the sand and keep saying, best of the world, governor, how can you possibly criticise it in any way? That's just vapid nonsense. What can we do, Liam, to wake people up? Their families are at risk. Their pregnant daughters are at risk. What are we going to do? You've got to wake people up because this is not acceptable. It was a very interesting story on the front of the Telegraph yesterday, which was saying that hospital chiefs have been threatened with government action unless they get back to normal after the pandemic. Sajid Javid, the health secretary, has told NHS Trust to drop restrictions in hospitals that are limiting operational capacity. Mr Javid is threatening to name and shame NHS Trust that do not heed his call to ease the measures which were officially relaxed by the government last month. Who runs this country? We voted for this government, Liam, and we have this self-satisfied institution which is immune to government guidance telling them to drop the COVID measures so that they can see these desperate people more quickly. A friend of mine with a toddler was in A&E last week for eight and a half hours with a screaming baby. She said it was absolute bedlam. The health secretary is basically having to threaten our health service paid for by the British taxpayer telling them, I'm going to name and shame you if you don't get back to normal. Isn't this an astonishing state of affairs, really? It is. And it's a failure of our political and media class to say what's obviously happening, which what many, many people know. In the early halcyon days of Tony Blair, he did refer to, as I said to Tim Cox, the scars on his back of people who tried to reform the NHS. Of course, in the end, New Labour succumbed as well, and they just stuffed the doctors' mouths with gold, as the original founders of the NHS had to in the famous quote. And loads of money went in, and there wasn't much reform, or the reform was more sort of circular reorganisations that they always seem to have, rather than actually trying to properly change incentives and culture. And it strikes me that we have to have this debate, otherwise people will continue to, in effect, lose their lives because the, our healthcare system is inefficient. That is not a political statement. That is a statement of fact when you look at the data in a cold, hard analytical way. And what more important part of public policy is there, Alison, than maternity services, as we've said in recent weeks in the light of the astonishing Ockenden report, and more broadly, healthcare. It amazes me that people who present themselves as progressive and nice and liberal go absolutely nuts when people like you and me try to point out that we want the NHS to be around and we want the NHS to be free at the point of use. And no, we don't want a much more hard-edged American system 
and everybody should have access to healthcare free at the point of use. And yet we think it could work better so fewer people die. How could that be a controversial thing to say? And yet it is because, as I think it was Nigel Lawson who first said it, the NHS has become our national religion. But as Tim Knox said to you, the latest British Attitudes survey for the first time showed a drop in people having a good opinion of the health service. And I hate to say this, Liam, but in the next few years, thousands and thousands of people, many of them younger parents, are going to die of common cancers because they weren't picked up during lockdown. Experts we've spoken to, Carol Sakura, Gordon Wishart, they think it's well over 100,000. And sadly, I think it may take those people's deaths to shake us out of our complacent coma about this health service, which is killing people. Tim said to you, over 6,000 people every year would be alive had they received appropriate care. And that is a national scandal. If only, Alison, if only there had been journalists out there who during lockdown had warned about the dangers (laughs) of cancer scans not happening. If only. Oh, dear. We labour in vain, honey. We labour in vain. How about a bit of George? George is our NHS England insider with full access to the data. We don't say if George is a man or a woman. We don't disclose his or her identity, though we have full confidence in George's statistics. We can't independently verify them because in some cases they're not even published. I know Planet Normal listeners really have valued George during this extraordinary period when he or she has been able to give us a unique insight into what is actually going on in the NHS, which, as the Telegraph leader yesterday said, the NHS is gaslighting the British people by telling them, of course you can see a GP, of course there's no problem getting a cancer scan. Yes, there is. They are lying to us, Liam. So I asked George, just for a bit of an update now... And George says the bed situation is slightly better than it was a few weeks ago. Total hospital occupancy is around 90%. So it's not as bad as Matthew Taylor, the NHS chief executive of the NHS Confederation, has been warning about. But George says there is a serious problem with hospital discharges. The proportion of patients each day who no longer meet the criteria to reside is around 20%. So on Sunday, says George, that's Sunday just gone, a fifth of all hospital beds were occupied by patients who were ready to be discharged. And of that 20%, Liam, over two thirds were not discharged. So an extra 12,000 hospital beds could have been made available that very day to new patients who are sitting or lying in ambulances outside the hospital, but those beds are not becoming available. And George says that situation hasn't been made any better by sacking all those unvaccinated care home workers. And George goes on to say that this constipation in the NHS is what causes many of the knock-on issues. People can't see a GP, they're turning up at A&E, they have an incredibly long wait, ambulances are stuck at an A&E waiting to hand over a patient who's lying on the trolley. Meanwhile, the ambulances can't go out and respond to an urgent heart attack call, hence these terribly dramatic and upsetting waits for an ambulance. 
coming back to what Tim Knox said so eloquently and forcefully to you, Liam, George says hospitals are still hanging on to many of the COVID infection control policies, which is obviously contributing to this inefficiency. And this is a personal thing from George. I just asked George for some reflection on these matters that we are so exercised about this week. George says the bureaucracy with NHS England is crippling. To take one example, I've been trying to track down some support with a specific issue and I cannot find the right person, despite there being pages and pages of people on a chart, all with job titles that sound relevant. All of them are mid to senior level staff, armies of people who, in a hospital setting, would be running entire departments, but they're employed in some niche role in a centralised organisation hoovering up public funds. These NHS England admin staff are more senior and get paid more than the most senior of operational nursing staff. It beggars belief. I thought, says George, Sajid Javid had appointed someone to review the headcount and thin out the undergrowth, but there doesn't seem to be any sign of that happening. I feel like the organisation has gone backwards since the new CEO took over. The amount of money wasted on consultancies, vanity IT projects is just obscene. No one appears to have any self-awareness here of the optics of some of the decisions taken, maybe because they don't register in the public consciousness. Weeding out one organisation clearly won't fix all the funding issues, but the sclerotic nature of the central NHS management just sets the tone of mediocrity that gets tolerated throughout the whole system. And I concluded, Liam, by asking George what we can do to sort this out. It's very hard to see what the solution is for the NHS crisis, other than to urge people do try to stay healthy. Now on to our listener emails. Please keep your wonderful messages coming. As Halligan said to you last week, I steal from them frequently from my columns, so that's very important <laughs> to me. Finally got it on the record. <laughs> <laughs> okay, how many times have I got to say this to you? T.S. Eliot. Oh, here we go. Immature poets borrow, mature poets steal. Okay, I'm a mature poet. This is from Charles. Dear Liam, I was born in 1954, the year that the final bit of food rationing was lifted, and as such, I am a baby boomer. My father was in the Bradford wool trade, and thanks to the Korean War, he was quite prosperous, and we lived in quite privileged circumstances, that is, until the 1970s. What I've read in today's papers feels like a rerun of my late teens. Inflation's taking hold, and in spite of the Governor of the Bank of England calling for wage straight, Fat charge, amigo. Every public sector worker in the country will soon be demanding inflation-busting pay increases. The consequences are dire. Wealth destruction is devastating, not only for the wealthy and the wealth creators, but the entire working population as unemployment then rises. At the end of the 70s, my father was to all intents and purposes skint, having had inflation completely demolish his savings. He didn't believe in debt, so he was particularly badly affected, but now the world is so completely indebted, perhaps the effects of inflation will not be so devastating. That said, the current level of borrowing brought about by lockdown feels like betting the crown jewels on a thousand to one outsider with a gammy leg. 
I still don't think I've read or heard a single good reason for lockdown and being an avid Planet Normal listener. I've followed COVID and lockdown week by week as you interviewed eminent guest after eminent guest talking total common sense in the face of the rank lunacy that was government policy. As policymakers now set about trying to make up for their stupidity, they compound it with tax rises, the highest level since Clement Attlee, for goodness sake. Let's guess what the consequences will be. Oh, I know. We don't have to guess. We just need to look at what happened in the 1970s. I only hope I live to see the day that we discover the next Margaret Thatcher. Perhaps we have one in our midst already, namely Lord Frost. Sorry to ramble, but my frustration's born out of watching the same mistakes being made and then seeing politicians say we got it wrong in a way that suggests that the error could not have been avoided. Ah! Even post-Covid, I find myself looking forward to hearing you and Alison on Planet Normal every week. So please keep it coming. Best wishes, Charles. Thank you, Charles, for an absolutely brilliant email. Finally, co-pilot, you're going to enjoy this. George responded to my unfortunate pornographic collapse into women in waders. George says, (laughs) Alison, you have my sympathy for accessing unexpected pornography. Prior to our first (laughs) canal boat holiday, I googled canal cruising in Wales, or at least I thought I did. Note to self, check that the first letter of canal is definitely there. Otherwise, (laughs) expect a very different kind of holiday. (laughs) So that's it from Planet Normal for another week on that bombshell as we leave our sanctuary of sweet reason, our flying refuge of reasoned views. Email of the week, Alison. Oh, it's got to be Charles with his wonderful and very moving memories of the 70s mistakes repeating themselves. So Charles, send us an email at planetnormal.telegraph.co.uk and put mug winner in the subject heading and you will be getting a Planet Normal mug. If you enjoy Planet Normal, do leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It really does help others to find us. Do keep emailing us and of course next week is our 100th Planet Normal episode. We've got this event in central London on Wednesday the 11th of May. The in-person tickets are now unfortunately entirely sold out. They sold out in a single day in fact. We should have booked a bigger venue. The Albert Hall next time. <laughs> you can still attend though online and for subscribers that's free. Google Telegraph Extra Planet Normal and you'll see the website where you can book an online ticket and for non-subscribers that's £10. Please do join us in that way because we will be taking questions from the audience and hopefully we'll have a lot of fun. We do sincerely apologise to everyone who wanted to attend in person. We knew there was huge interest given your countless emails and, as we just said, Royal Albert Hall next time. Wembley Stadium, Halligan. Next time we will. (laughs) And as we speed away from our beloved planet normal and the madness of planet Earth comes back into view, thanks as ever to our wonderful production team, Isabel Bouchard, Elliot Lampitt, and our editor, Zoe Hitch. Stay safe and in touch with us and with each other. Until next week, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from him. 